Volume One, Chapter Twenty First of The Antiquary. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Antiquary by Sir Walter Scott. Chapter Twenty First. The Lord Abbot had a soul subtle and quick, and searching as the fire. By magic stairs he went as deep as hell, and if in devil's possession gold be kept, he brought some sure from thence. Tis hidden caves known save to me to none the wonder of a kingdom lovel almost mechanically followed the beggar who led the way with a hasty and steady pace through bush and bramble avoiding the beaten path and often turning to listen whether there were any sounds of pursuit behind them they sometimes descended into the very bed of the torrent sometimes kept a narrow and precarious path that the sheep, which with the sluttish negligence towards property of that sort universal in Scotland, were allowed to stray in the copse, had made along the very verge of its overhanging banks. From time to time Lovell had a glance for the path which he had traversed the day before in company with Sir Arthur, the antiquary, and the young ladies. Dejected, embarrassed, and occupied by a thousand inquietudes, as he then was, what would he now have given to regain the sense of innocence which alone can counterbalance a thousand evils? Yet then, such was his hasty and involuntary reflection, even then, guiltless and valued by all around me, I thought myself unhappy. What am I now, with this young man's blood upon my hands? The feeling of pride which urged me to the deed has now deserted me, as the actual fiend himself is said to do, those whom he has tempted to guilt. Even his affection for Miss Wardour sunk for the time before the first pangs of remorse, and he thought he could have encountered every agony of slighted love to have had the conscious freedom from blood-guiltiness which he possessed in the morning. These painful reflections were not interrupted by any conversation on the part of his guide, who threaded the thicket before him, now holding back the sprays to make his path easy, now exhorting him to make haste, now muttering to himself, after the custom of solitary and neglected old age, words which might have escaped Lovell's ear, even had he listened to them, or which, apprehended and retained, were too isolated to convey any connected meaning. A habit which may be often observed among people of the old man's age and calling. At length, as Lovell, exhausted by his late indisposition, the harrowing feelings by which he was agitated, and the exertion necessary to keep up with his guide in a path so rugged, began to flag and fall behind. Two or three very precarious steps placed him on the front of a precipice, overhung with brushwood and copse. Here a cave, as narrow in its entrance as a fox-earth, was indicated by a small fissure in the rock, screened by the boughs of an aged oak, which, anchored by its thick and twisted roots in the upper part of the cleft, flung its branches almost straight outward from the cliff, concealing it effectually from all observation. It might indeed have escaped the attention even of those who had stood at its very opening, so uninviting was the portal at which the beggar entered. 
but within, the cavern was higher and more roomy, cut into two separate branches, which, intersecting each other at right angles, formed an emblem of the cross, and indicated the abode of an anchorette of former times. There are many caves of the same kind in different parts of Scotland. I need only instance those of Gorton, near Rosslyn, in a scene well known to the admirers of romantic nature. The light within the eve was a dusky twilight at the entrance, which failed altogether in the inner recesses. "'Few folks can o' this place,' said the old man. "'To the best of my knowledge, there's just twy living by myself, and that's jingling jock and a lang linker. I have had mony a thought that, when I find myself oid and forfairn, and no able to enjoy God's blessed air any longer, I would drag myself here with a pickleite meal, and see there's a bit bonny droppin' well that popples that self-same gate simmer in winter. And I would ein streak myself out here, and abide my removal, like an old dag that trails its useless ogsome carcass in a some bush or bracken, not a guy living things a schooner with the side of it when it's dead. Hi, and then, when the dogs barked at the lone farmstead, the good wife would cry, Wisht, Stira, that'll be I, Daddy. And the bits o' weans wide up, poor things, and toddle to the door, put in the old blue gown that men's eye their bunny dies. But there would be nine more word, already, I trow. He then led Lovell, who followed him unresistingly, into one of the interior branches of the cave. Here, he said, he's a bit turnpike stair that guys up to the old Kirkaboon. Some folks say this place was howked out by the monks lang syne to hide their treasure in, and some said that they used to bring things into the abbey this gate by night, that they durstna say will hide brought in by the main port in an open day. And some said that ain of them turned a saint, or Iblins, what a head folk thinks I, and settled him down in this St. Ruth's cell, as the old folks I'd cut it, and guard big the stair, that he might gang up to the kirk when they were at the divine service. The laird of Monkbarns, what I a handle to say about it, as he has about my things, if he kenned only about that place. But whether it's made for man's devices or God's service, I have seen o'er muckle sin done in it in my day, and far o'er muckle have I been partaker of. Hi, even here in this dark cove. Mony a good wife's been wondering what for the red cock didn't cry her up in the morning, when he's been roasting, poor fellow, in this dark hole. And oh, I wish that and the like o' that had been the worst i Wives they would a heard the din we were makin' in the very bowels of the earth, when Sanders Ike would, that was Forster in those days, the father of Ringen that now is, was gone daunderin' about the wood I even, to see after the laird's game, and whilst he would I seen a glance of the light fry the door of the cave, flouterin' against the hazels on the other bank. And then sickened stories of Sanders had about the worry cows and gyry carlins that haunted about the old ways at even. And the lights that he had seen, and the cries that he had heard, when there was nigh mortal even open but his eyne. And I, 
as you would thrum them o'er and over to the like o' me, I ain't the ingle at e'en. And as I'd gie the old silly carly grind for grind, and tail for tail, though I can muckle better about it than ever he did. Ay, ay, they were daft days, I. But they were a vanity and war, and it's fitting that they would hide let a light an evil life, and abuse charity when they were young. So Iblins came to lack it when they are old. While Ochiltree was thus recounting the exploits and tricks of his earlier life, with a tone in which glee and compunction alternately predominated, his unfortunate auditor had sat down upon the hermit's seat, hewn out of the solid rock, and abandoned himself to that lassitude, both of mind and body, which generally follows a course of events that have agitated both. The effect of his late indisposition, which had much weakened his system, contributed to this lethargic despondency. "'The poor bairn,' said old Eddie, "'and he sleeps in this damp hole. He'll maybe work in Neymar, or catch some sire disease. It's no the same to him as the like us, that can sleep ony gate and eins our wames are fu'. So top, Master Lovell lad, after I's come and gone, I dare say the captain lad will do well enough, and after I, you're no the first that has had this misfortune. I have seen money a man killed and helped to kill them myself, though there was nigh quarrel between us, and if it is no wrong the killed folk we had nigh quarrelled with, just because they were another sort of a cockade and speak a foreign language, I kind of see what a man may have excuse for killing his ain mortal foe that comes armed to the fair field to kill him. I didn't say it's right, God forbid, or that it isn't a sinful to take away what you canna restore, and that's the breath of man, wooks in his nostrils. But I say it is a sin to be forgiven if it's repented of. Sinful men are we I. But if you would believe an old grey sinner that has seen the evil o' his ways, there is as much promise between the twy boards of the testament as would save the worst of us, could we but think so. With such scraps of comfort and of divinity as he possessed, the mendicant thus continued to solicit and compel the attention of Lovell, until the twilight began to fade into night. Nay, said Ochiltree, I carry ye to a more convenient place, where I set mony a time to hear the howlet crying out of the ivy toad, and to see the moonlight come through the eyed windows of the ruins. There can be nobody come here after this time o' night, and if they had made any search, thy blackguard sheer officers and constables, it would lie a bin o'er long syne. Hoid, they are as great cowards as either folk, with I their warrants and king's keys. Reader's Note The king's keys are, in law phrase, the crowbars and hammers used to force doors and locks in execution of the king's warrant. End Reader's Note I given some of them a glyph in my day, when they were coming rather o'er near me. But, louded we grace for it, they kind of stir me now for any war than an old man and a beggar, and my badge is a good protection. And then Miss Isabella Wardour is a tower of strength, ye ken. Lovell sighed. I weel, didn't be cast down. Bowls may all roll right yet. Guide the lassie time to ken her mind. 
she's the whale of the country for beauty and a good friend o mine i gang by the bridewell as safe as by the kirk on a sabbath dale ony o them dar hurt a hair o old eddie's head now i keep the crown o the cosy when i guide the borough and rub shoulders with a bailey with as little concern as an he were a brook while the mendicant spoke thus he was busied in removing a few loose stones in one angle of the cave which obscured the entrance of the staircase of which he had spoken and led the way into it followed by lovell in passive silence there's free enough said the old man the monks took care of that for they were not a long breather generation i reckon they i contrived queer turly-whirly holes that gang out to the open air and keep the stairs colour as a kale blade lovell accordingly found the staircase well aired and though narrow it was neither ruinous nor long but speedily admitted them into a narrow gallery contrived from within the side wall of the chancel from which it received air and light through apertures ingeniously hidden amid the floor and ornaments of the gothic architecture the secret passage ain't skate round great part o the biggin said the beggar and through the wall all the place i've heard monkbarns call the refractory reader's note meaning probably refectory end reader's note and so i way to the prior's ain house it's like you could use it to listen what the monks were saying at meal-time and then you might come ben here and see that they were busy scrying away with the psalms down below there and then when he saw i was right and tight he might step away and fetch in a bonny lass at the cove yonder for they were queer hands the monks unless money lees is made on them but our folk were a great pains lang syne to big up the passage in some parts and pull it down in others for fear of some uncanny body getting into it and finding their way down to the cove it would have been a fascious job that by my certy some of our necks would have been ookin they now came to a place where the gallery was enlarged into a small circle sufficient to contain a stone seat a niche constructed exactly before it projected forward into the chancel and as its sides were latticed as it were with perforated stonework it commanded a full view of the chancel in every direction and was probably constructed as eddie intimated to be a convenient watch-tower from which the superior priest himself unseen might watch the behaviour of his monks and ascertain by personal inspection their punctual attendance upon those rites of devotion which his rank exempted him from sharing with them as this niche made one of a regular series which stretched along the wall of the chancel and in no respect differed from the rest when seen from below the secret station screened as it was by the stone figure of st michael and the dragon and the open tracery around the niche was completely hid from observation the private passage confined to its pristine breath had originally continued beyond this seat but the jealous precautions of the vagabonds who frequented the cave of st ruth had caused them to build it carefully up with hewn stones from the ruin we shall be better here said eddie 
seating himself on the stone bench and stretching the lappet of his blue gown upon the spot, when he motioned Lovell to sit down beside him. "'We shall be better here than down below. The air is free and mild, and the savour of the wallflowers and sicken shrubs as grow on thy ruined ways is far more refreshing than the damp smell down below yonder. They smell sweetest by night-time, thy flowers, and there must I seen about rind buildings. Nay, Master Lovell, could any o' your scholars gie a good reason for that? Lovell replied in the negative. I'm thinking, resumed the beggar, that they'll be like money folks good gifts, that often seem most gracious in adversity. Or maybe it's a parable to teach us no to slight them that are in the darkness of sin and the decay of tribulation, since God sends odors to refresh the murkest hour and flowers and pleasant bushes to clothe the ruined buildings. And I would like a wise man to tell me whether heaven is most pleased with the sight we are looking upon, thy pleasant and quiet lying streaks of moonlight that are lying side still on the floor, or this old kirk, and glancing through the great pillars and stanchions of the card windows, and just dancing, like on the leaves of the dark ivy, as the breath of wind shakes it. I wonder whether this is more pleasing to heaven than when it was lighted up with lamps and candles night out in roughies. Reader's Note Links or Torches End Reader's Note and with the mirth and the frankincense that they speak o' in the Holy Scripture, and with organs assuredly, and men and women singers and sackboots and dulcimers and high instruments of music. I wonder if that was acceptable, or whether it is of these grand powerful ceremonies that Holy Writ says. It is an abomination to me. I'm thinking, Master Lovell, if twy poor contrite spirits like yours and mine find grace to make our petition. Here Lovell laid his hand eagerly on the mendicant's arm, saying, Hush, I heard someone speak. I'm dull hearing, answered Annie in a whisper, but we're surely safe here. Where is the sound? Lovell pointed to the door of the chancel, which, highly ornamented, occupied the west end of the building surmounted by the carved window, which let in a flood of moonlight over it. "'There can be nine our folk,' said Eddie, in the same low and cautious tone. "'There's but twy of them kens the place, and they're mony a mile off, if they are still bound on their weary pilgrimage. "'I never think it's the officers here at this time of night. "'I'm nigh believer in old wives' stories about guys, though this is gay like a place for them.' But mortal or all of the other world, here they come, twy men and a light. And in very truth, while the mendicant spoke, two human figures darkened with their shadows the entrance of the chancel, which had before opened to the moonlit meadow beyond, and the small lantern which one of them displayed glimmered pale in the clear and strong beams of the moon, as the evening star does among the lights of the departing day. The first and most obvious idea was, that despite the asseverations of Eddie Ochiltree, the persons who approached the ruins at an hour so uncommon must be the officers of justice in quest of Lovell. But no part of their conduct confirmed the suspicion. A touch and a whisper from the old man warned Lovell that his best course was to remain quiet 
and watch their motions from their pleasant place of concealment. Should anything appear to render retreat necessary, they had behind them the private staircase and cavern, by means of which they could escape into the wood long before any close pursuit. They kept themselves, therefore, as still as possible, and observed with eager and anxious curiosity every accent and motion of these nocturnal wanderers. After conversing together some time in whispers, the two figures advanced into the middle of the chancel, and a voice which Lovell at once recognized, from its tone and dialect, to be that of Dousterswivel, pronounced in a louder but still a smothered tone, "'Indeed, mine good sir, there cannot be one finer hour nor season for this great purpose. You shall see, mine good sir, that it is all one bibble-babble that Mr. Oldenbuck says, and that he knows no more of what he speaks than one little child. Mine soul, he expects to get as rich as one Jew for his poor dirty one hundred pounds, which I care no more about, by mine honest wart, than I care for an hundred stivers.' But you, my most munificent and reverend patron, I will show all these secrets that art can show, ay, the secret of the great pie-mender. That other ein, whispered Eddie, mun be, according to a likelihood, Sir Arthur Wardour. I ken nobody but himself would come here at this time of evening with that German blackguard. Hein would think he's bewitched him. He guards him even troll that chalk his cheese. Let's see what they can be doing. This interruption, and the low tone in which Sir Arthur spoke, made Lovell lose all Sir Arthur's answer to the adept, excepting the last three emphatic words, very great expense, to which Dousterswivel at once replied, Expenses, to be sure, there must be the great expenses. You do not expect to reap before you do sow the seed. The expense is the seed de riches and de mine of good metal and now de great big chests of plate they are de crop very good crop too on mine wort now sir arthur you have sowed this night one little seed of ten guineas like one pinch of snuff or so big if you do not reap de great harvest dat is de great harvest for de little pinch of seed for it must be proportions you must know then never call one honest man Herman Dousterswivel. Now you see, mine patron, for I will not conceal mine secret from ye at all. You see this little plate of silver. You know, the moon measureth the whole zodiac in the space of twenty-eight day. Every child knows that. Well, I take a silver plate when she is her fifteenth mansion, which mansion is in the head of Libra and I grave upon one side the words, Shabdarshimath Skarachan, that is, the emblems of the intelligence of the moon. And I make this picture like a flying serpent with a turkey-cock's head. Very well. Then upon this side, I make the table of the moon, which is a square of nine, multiplied into itself, with eighty-one numbers on every side, and diameter nine. Dear it is done, very proper. Now I'll make disavail me at the change of every quarter noon, that I shall find, by the same proportions of expenses, I lay out, in the suffumigations as nine, to the product of nine, multiplied into itself, 
but I shall find no more to-night, as maybe two or three times nine, because there's a fourteen power in the house of ascendancy. But Douster Swivel, said the simple baronet, does not this look like magic? I am a true though unworthy son of the Episcopal Church, and I will have nothing to do with the foul fiend. Bah, bah, not a bit magic in it at all, not a bit. It is all founded on de planetary influence, and de sympathy and force of numbers. I will show you much finer dan dis. I do not say there is not de spirit in it, because of de suffumigation. But if you are not afraid, he shall not be invisible. I have no curiosity to see him at all, said the baronet, whose courage seemed, from a certain quaver in his accent, to have taken a fit of the ague. That is great pity, said Douster Swivel. I should have liked to show you de spirit that guard this treasure like one fierce watchdog, but I know how to manage him. You would not care to see him. Not at all, answered the baronet, in a tone of feigned indifference. I think we have but little time. You shall pardon me, my patron. It is not yet twelve, and twelve precise is just our planetary hours. And I could show you de spirit very well in de meanwhile, just for pleasure. You see, I would draw a pentagon within a circle, which is no trouble at all and make my suffumigation within it, and there we would be like in one strong castle, and you would hold the sword, while I did say de needful warts. Then you should see the solid wall open like the gate of Ein City, and then, let me see, aye, you should see first one stag pursued by three black greyhounds, and they should pull him down, as they do at the elector's great hunting match, and then one ugly, little nasty black negro should appear and take the stag from them, and puff, all should be gone, and then you should hear horns, winded, that all the ruins should ring, mine wart, they should play fine hunting-piece, as good as him you'd called Fisher, with his oboy. Very well, then comes one herald, as we call Ernhold, winding his horn, and then come the great Pelophan, called the mighty hunter of the north, mounted on him's black steed. But you would not care to see all this. Why, well, I am not afraid, answered the poor baronet, if that is, does anything, any great mischiefs happen on such occasions. Bah! Mischiefs? No. Sometimes if the circle be no quite just, or the beholder, be the frightened coward, and not hold the sword firm and straight towards him. The great hunter will take his advantage, and drag him, exorcist out of the circle, and throttle him. That does happens. Well, then, Durster Swivel, with every confidence in my courage and your skill, we will dispense with this apparition, and go on to the business of the night. With all mine heart, it is just one thing to me, and— now it is the time. Hold you to swore till I kindle the little what you call chip. Douster Swivel accordingly set fire to a little pile of chips, touched and prepared with some bituminous substance, 
to make them burn fiercely. And when the flame was at the highest, and lightened, with its short-lived glare, all the ruins around, the German flung in a handful of perfumes, which produced a strong and pungent odor. The exorcist and his pupil both were so much affected as to cough and sneeze heartily, and as the vapor floated around the pillars of the building and penetrated every crevice, it produced the same effect on the beggar and Lovell. "'Was that an echo?' said the baronet, astonished at the sternitation which resounded from above. "'Or, drawing close to the adept, "'can it be the spirit you talked of, "'ridiculing our attempt upon his hidden treasures?' "'No,' muttered the German, "'who began to partake of his pupil's terrors. "'I hope not.' "'Here a violent of sneezing, "'which the mendicant was unable to suppress, "'and which could not be considered by any means "'as the dying fall of an echo, "'accompanied by a grunting half-smothered cough, "'confounded the two treasure-seekers. "'Lord of mercy on us,' said the baronet, alle guten geistern loben den herrn ejaculated the terrified adept i was begun to think he continued after a moment's silence that this would be de bestermost done in de daylight we was bestermost to go away just now you juggling villain said the baronet in whom these expressions awakened a suspicion that overcame his terrors connected as it was with the sense of desperation arising from the apprehension of impending ruin. "'You juggling, Montebank! This is some legerdemain trick of yours to get off from the performance of your promise, as you have so often done before. But before heaven, I will this night know what I have trusted to when I suffer you to fool me onto my ruin. Go on, then. Come, fairy, come, fiend, you shall show me that treasure, or confess yourself a knave and an impostor, or, by the faith of a desperate and ruined man, I'll send you where you shall see spirits enough. The treasure-finder, trembling between his terror for the supernatural beings by whom he supposed himself to be surrounded, and for his life, which seemed to be at the mercy of a desperate man, could only bring out, Mine patron, this is not the alberstamost usage. Consider, mine honoured sir, that despirits. Here Eddie, who began to enter into the humour of the scene, uttered an extraordinary howl, being in exaltation and a prolongation of the most deplorable wine in which he was accustomed to solicit charity. Dousterswivel flung himself on his knees. Dear Sir Arthurs, let us go, or let me go. "'No, you cheating scoundrel,' said the knight, unsheathing the sword which he had brought for the purposes of the exorcism. "'That shift shall not serve you. Monkbarns wore me long since of your juggling pranks. I will see this treasure before you leave this place. I will have you confess yourself an impostor. Or, by heaven, I'll run the sword through you, though all the spirits of the dead should rise around us.' "'For the love of heaven, be patient, mine honoured patron, "'and you shall have all the treasure as I knows of. "'Yes, you shall indeed. "'But do not speak about the spirits. "'It makes them angry.' "'Eddie Ochiltree, 
here prepared himself to throw in another groan, but was restrained by Lovell, who began to take a more serious interest, as he observed the earnest and almost desperate demeanour of Sir Arthur. Dousterswivel, having at once before his eyes the fear of the foul fiend and the violence of Sir Arthur, played his part of a conjurer extremely ill, hesitating to assume the degree of confidence necessary to deceive the latter, lest it should give offence to the invisible cause of his alarm. However, after rolling his eyes, muttering and sputtering German exorcisms, with contortions of his face and person, rather flowing from the impulse of terror than of meditated fraud, he at length proceeded to a corner of the building, where a flat stone lay upon the ground, bearing upon its surface the effigy of an armed warrior, in a recumbent posture, carved in bas-relief. He muttered to Sir Arthur, "'Mine patrons, it is here. God save us all!' Sir Arthur, who, after the first moment of his superstitious fear, was over, seemed to have bent up all his faculties to the pitch of resolution necessary to carry on the adventure, lent the adept his assistance to turn over the stone, which, by means of a lever that the adept had provided, their joint force with difficulty effected. No supernatural light burst forth from below to indicate the subterranean treasury, nor was there any apparition of spirits, earthly or infernal. But when Dousterswivel had, with great trepidation, struck a few strokes with a mattock, and as hastily thrown out a shovelful or two of earth, for they came provided with the tools necessary for digging, something was heard to ring like the sound of a falling piece of metal, and Dousterswivel, hastily catching up the substance which produced it, and which his shovel had thrown out along with the earth, exclaimed, "'On mine dear wart, mine patrons, this is all, it is indeed, I mean, all we can do to-night.' And he gazed round him with a cowering and fearful glance, as if to see from what corner the avenger of his imposture was to start forth. "'Let me see it,' said Sir Arthur, and then repeated still more sternly, "'I will be satisfied. I will judge by mine own eyes.' He accordingly held the object to the light of the lantern. It was a small case or casket, for Lovell could not at the distance exactly discern its shape, which, from the baronet's exclamation as he opened it, he concluded was filled with coin. "'Aye,' said the baronet, "'this is being indeed in good luck. "'And if it omens proportional success upon a larger venture, "'the venture shall be made. "'That six hundred of goldy words, added to the other incumbent claims, "'must have been ruin indeed.' If you think we can parry it by repeating this experiment, suppose when the moon next changes, I will hazard the necessary advance. Come by it how I may. Oh, mine good patrons, do not speak about all that, said Dousterswivel, as just now, but help me to put de stone to de rights, and let us be gone our own ways. And accordingly, so soon as the stone was replaced, he hurried Sir Arthur, who was now resigned once more to his guidance, away from a spot where the German's guilty conscience and superstitious fears 
represented goblins as lurking behind each pillar, with the purpose of punishing his treachery. "'Say anybody e'er the like of that,' said Eddie, when they had disappeared like shadows through the gate by which they had entered. "'So any creature livin' e'er the like of that. "'But what can we do for that poor doited devil of a knight, baronet? "'Oid, he showed muckle my spunk, too, than I thought had been in him. "'I thought he would hae sent cold iron through the vagabond. "'Sir Arthur wasna half so bored at Bessie's apron yon night. "'But then his blood was up even now, and that makes an unco difference.' I seen mony a man would have failed another and anger him, that one a muckle I like to clink against Crummy's horn yon time. But what's to be done? I suppose, said Lovell, his faith in this fellow is entirely restored by this deception, which, unquestionably, he had arranged beforehand. What, the siller? Aye, I trust him for that. They that hide ken best where to find— he wants to wile him out o' his last guinea, and then escape to his ain country, the landloper. I would like it will just to come in at the clippin' time, and gain him a lounder with my pike stuff. He would have taken it for a, a benison by some of the old dead abbots. But it's best not to be rash, stickin' dis gang by strength, but by the guiding of the galley. I's be upsized with him my day. What if you should inform Mr. Oldbuck? said Lovell. Oh, I didna ken. Monkbarns and Sir Arthur are like, and yet they're no like neither. Monkbarns has wild's influence with him, and while Sir Arthur cares as little about him as about the like o' me. Monkbarns is no that overwise himself in some things. He would believe a bottle to be an old Roman coin as he kies it, or a ditch to be a camp, upon only leasing that idle folk made about it. I guard him troll mony a queer tale myself. Good forgive me. But with I that, he has uncool little sympathy with either folks. And he snail and door enough and casting up their nonsense to them, as if he had nine his ain. He listened the high day, and yell, Tell him about tales of Wallace and Blind Harry and Davy Lindsay. But you munna speak to him about ghosts or fairies, or spirits walking the earth, or the like of that. Yet I must flung old Caxon out of the window, and he might just as well have flung away his best wig after him. For threepenny had seen a geist at the humlock no. Now, if he was taking it up in this way, he would have set up the t'other's burst and may we do mar ill nor good. He's done that twice or thrice about thy mind-marks. You would thought Sir Arthur had a pleasure in going on with them the deeper, the more he was warned against it by Monk Barnes. What say you, then, said Lovell, to letting Miss Wardour know the circumstance? Hoy, poor thing! How could she stop her father doing his pleasure? And besides, what would it help? There's a sof in the country about the six hundred pounds, and there's a rider child in Edinburgh, has been driving the spoor rose o' the law up to the head into Sir Arthur's sides to gar and pay it, and if he canna, he maun gang to jail or flee the country. He's like a desperate man, 
and just catches at this chance as I ye has left to escape utter perdition. So it signifies plaguing the poor lassie about what kind of be helped. And besides, to say the truth, I wouldn't like to tell the secret of this place. It's uncool convenient, you see yourself, to hide a hiding hole, I ain's own. And though I be out of the line, a uh, need an I need now, and trust in the power o' grace, and I'll ne'er do anything to need ain again. Yet nobody kens what temptation I may be given o'er to. And to be brief, I don't abide the thought of anybody kenning about the place. They say, keep a thing seven year, and you'll I find a use for it. And maybe I may need the cove either for myself or for some other body. This argument, in which Eddie Ochiltree, notwithstanding his scraps of morality and of divinity, seemed to take, perhaps from old habit, a personal interest, could not be handsomely controverted by Lovell, who was at that moment reaping the benefit of the secret of which the old man appeared to be so jealous. This incident, however, was of great service to Lovell, as diverting his mind from the unhappy occurrence of the evening and considerably rousing the energies which had been stupefied by the first view of his calamity. He reflected that it by no means necessarily followed that a dangerous wound must be a fatal one, that he had been hurried from the spot even before the surgeon had expressed any opinion of Captain M'Intyre's situation, and that he had duties on earth to perform, even should the very worst be true, which, if they could not restore his peace of mind or sense of innocence, would furnish a motive for enduring existence, and at the same time render it a course of active benevolence. Such were Lovell's feelings when the hour arrived, when, according to Eddie's calculation, who by some train or process of his own in observing the heavenly bodies, stood independent of the assistance of a watch or timekeeper, it was fitting they should leave their hiding-place, and betake themselves to the seashore, in order to meet Lieutenant Taffrell's boat according to appointment. They retreated by the same passage, which had admitted them to the prior secret seat of observation, and when they issued from the grotto into the wood, the birds which began to chirp, and even to sing, announced that the dawn was advanced. This was confirmed by the light and amber clouds that appeared over the sea, as soon as their exit from the copse permitted them to view the horizon. Morning, said to be friendly to the muses, has probably obtained this character from its effect upon the fancy and feelings of mankind. Even to those who, like Lovell, have spent a sleepless and anxious night, the breeze of the dawn brings strength and quickening both of mind and body. It was, therefore, with renewed health and vigour that Lovell, guided by the trusty mendicant, brushed away the dew as he traversed the downs, which divided the den of St. Ruth, as the woods surrounding the ruins were popularly called, from the seashore. The first level beam of the sun, as his brilliant disk began to emerge from the ocean, shot full upon the little gun-brig which was lying, too, in the offing. Close to the shore the boat was already waiting, Taffril himself, with his naval cloak wrapped about him, seated in the stern. He jumped ashore when he saw the mendicant and Lovell approach, 
and shaking the latter heartily by the hand, begged him not to be cast down. Mintyre's wound, he said, was doubtful, but far from desperate. His attention had got Lovell's baggage privately sent on board the brig, and, he said, he trusted that if Lovell chose to stay with the vessel, the penalty of a short cruise would be the only disagreeable consequence of his rencounter. As for himself, his time and motions were a good deal at his own disposal, he said, accepting the necessary obligation of remaining on his station. "'We will talk of our farther motions,' said Lovell, as we go on board. Then turning to Eddie, he endeavoured to put money into his hand. "'I think,' said Eddie, as he tendered it back again, "'the height folk here have either gone deft, or they have made a vow to rein my trade, as they say o'er muckle-water drowns the miller. I had mire gold offered me within this twire or three weeks than I ever sown in my life afore. Keep the siller, lad. You'll hae need o' it, I's warranty, and I nine my claes is nigh great things, and I get a blue gown every year, and as mony siller groats as the king, God bless him, is years aid. You and I serve the same master, ye ken, Captain Taffrel. There's riggin provided for, and my meat and drink I get for the askin in my rounds, or at an oar time. I can gang a day without it, for I make it a rule never to pay for nine. So that's I the siller I need is just to buy tobacco and schneeshin, and maybe a dram at a time in a cold day, though I'm no dram drinker to be a gabberlunzy. So take back your gold, and just give me a lily-white shillin'. Upon these whims, which he imagined intimately connected with the honour of his vagabond profession, Eddie was flint and adamant, not to be moved by rhetoric or entreaty, and therefore Lovell was under the necessity of again pocketing his intended bounty, and taking a friendly leave of the mendicant, by shaking him by the hand, and assuring him of his cordial gratitude for the very important services which he had rendered him, recommending, at the same time, secrecy as to what they had that night witnessed. "'You need a doubt that,' said Ochiltree. "'I never tell tales out o' yon cove in my life, though mony a queer thing I ha' seen ain't. The boat now put off. The old man remained, looking after it, as it made rapidly towards the brig, under the impulse of six stout rowers, and Lovell beheld him again wave his blue bonnet, as a token of farewell, ere he turned from his fixed posture, and began to move slowly along the sands, as if resuming his customary perambulations. Reader's Note Note F. Witchcraft A great deal of stuff, to the same purpose, with that place in the mouth of the German adept, may be found in Reginald Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, 3rd edition, Folio, London, 1665. The appendix is entitled, An Excellent Discourse of the Nature and Substances of Devils and Spirits, in Two Books, the first by the aforesaid author, Reginald Scott, the second now added in this third edition, as Susidaneous to the former, and conducing to the completing of the whole work. The second book, though stated as Susidaneous to the first, 
is in fact entirely at variance with it. For the work of Reginald Scott is a compilation of the absurd and superstitious ideas concerning which is so generally entertained at the time, and the pretended conclusion is a serious treatise on the various means of conjuring astral spirits. Note. Scott's discovery of witchcraft was first published in the reign of Queen Elizabeth, London, 1584. End note. End chapter 21st.